0: Compassion is a word that means sharing in the suffering of another. It is a deep feeling whereby it is not just I see the need that someone else has, but rather I go beyond that and actually share in their suffering in the sense that I strive to meet their need. And so it is going beyond recognition that's relatively easy to do. It is somewhat easy for me or you to recognize that someone else has a significant need, but compassion goes beyond that and we seek to meet their needs or to show mercy. I'm proud to say that many of you are involved in local compassion ministries through the various groups and organizations here at Beaver Dam. More compassion ministry goes on through this church than you know about. In fact, more compassion ministry goes on through this church than I know about, because there are all kinds of people who don't just see needs, but they go out and strive to meet those needs. It's easy to see, for example, that the food pantry has a monthly gathering where they pass out food. I didn't say that's easy to do, I said that's easy to see that that ministry happens. But there are many other ministries where people are going into homes on a regular basis and seeing the need and then seeking to meet that need. So I am not going to try to list the various compassion ministries this morning. No doubt I would forget about some, and no doubt it would take the rest of our times because you are a phenomenal church when it comes to meeting local needs called compassion ministry. But there is a distinction between what the church does and what other organizations do. There's a distinction between a governmental agency or even a nonprofit that's not connected to a church and what we do in compassion ministry. Because though we do try to meet physical needs, that is not all we try to do, nor is it our primary focus. You see, we recognize that a person's greatest need is not their physical needs. Now, they might think so. But we recognize that anyone's greatest need is not physical, rather it is spiritual in nature. So we use the physical in order to open up doors so that we can share the spiritual solution, that is, the gospel. I received an email this past week from the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board, more specifically from the Compassion Ministry Department of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board, and here's how they defined compassion ministry. Compassion ministry is meeting the needs of unchurched people so that a trusting relationship can be formed. So you're meeting physical needs for the purpose of building a relationship so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be shared so that those reach can be connected to a local church. It's a pretty good and succinct definition. We Try to meet physical needs for the purpose of building a a relationship. We build a relationship for the purpose of sharing the gospel, and having shared the gospel, we desire to connect people to our local church. This morning, we are going to talk about compassion ministry, and we are going to be doing so from the ministry of Jesus as recorded in Mark chapter 6. And our goal is not merely to see how Jesus did compassion ministry so that we can learn better how to do it ourselves, although we will see some uh, ideas here for that. Our goal is to see the man behind his compassion ministry. We broke off a couple of weeks ago from Mark chapter 6 and verse 29. We fast-forwarded on Palm Sunday to Mark 11, where the triumphal entry of Christ is found so that we could talk about uh, that particular incident on Palm Sunday. And then last week, we fast-forwarded again, and we went to Mark chapter 16, and we dealt with the resurrection since, of course, it was Easter. So we've done what you're not supposed to do in a book. That is, we've peaked at the end of the story, now we know what happens at the end, and we are going backwards to where we left off. Now, we've got a lot of verses to examine today, and I'm doing that for several reasons. One, I'm, I'm taking larger chunks of Scripture because I, I do not want to drag in our study of Mark and perhaps go beyond your patience and then your interest. In other words, I don't want to lose your interest. Secondly, I'm doing it because when we deal with stories, we can look at larger sections of Scripture. We're not dealing with teaching or didactic material, which is harder to deal with, and therefore, we have to take it slower. We're dealing with stories. And thirdly, sometimes these stories are repetitive in the sense that there might be a different miracle. The details might be different, but the idea behind the miracles are often the same, and therefore, we can take larger chunks. So today we're looking at three stories. All three of these stories will have one thing in common, and that is they show the compassion of Christ, so what I'm calling compassion ministry. We're going to start in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. "'The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, "'Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while.'" For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. and two fish. Then He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And He divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Our first story is perhaps one of the most well-known miracles of Jesus, and it is what I'm calling compassion at dinner. Other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle that is told in all four of the Gospels. And when you combine the fact that Matthew and Mark also tell another story, the feeding of the 4,000, there are six stories in the gospel narratives about Jesus multiplying loaves and fish and distributing it to vast sums of people. And so there must be something significant that we need to learn from these stories for them to be found so often. You know, sometimes when I start my study on Monday morning for the next Sunday sermon, I, I read through it initially and I think to myself, what am I going to say about this? How am I going to get enough stuff from this text for a sermon? And then usually by midweek, I realize that I actually have more than the time allotted. So therefore, when we look at stories like this, there is often more here than meets the eye. We begin with the note that the disciples have returned to Jesus and reported what they had accomplished and taught. And while we do not know the details, the fact that people were constantly coming and going around them, leading to Jesus' command to get away for some rest, probably tells us that their ministry was largely successful. Or at least it had attracted a large number of people, even as Jesus' ministry consistently did. You will recall that he sent them out with his authority to preach and to cast out demons. And Mark sandwiched the story, that is, he he sandwiched the sending out of the disciples and the return of the disciples with the banquet of Herod and all of the noblemen and ultimately the beheading of John the Baptist. That banquet was for nobles and invited guests only. Now we have a banquet that is for anyone who has come. It is an open invitation, even as this banquet foreshadows the future that is going to be ours. So Jesus calls them away for some R&R, for some rest and relaxation, though they did not actually get it. And this does remind us that everyone needs this from time to time, not too much, mind you, and that's probably the problem we have today. We have too much rest and relaxation sometimes. Well, there's nothing wrong with rest and relaxation. It is a a part of the God-given design. In fact, it's part of the reason the Sabbath was instituted and part of the reason we set aside the Lord's Day to refresh ourselves physically and spiritually. So it's not being lazy to get some rest and relaxation. It is being wise. But in this case, the crowd sees where they are going and apparently runs around the tip of the Sea of Galilee and gets to the place before Jesus and His disciples do, though we do not know the exact location. So when they pull the boat up to shore, there is once again a large crowd, and these disciples had expected to get some time alone with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I can guess what my reaction would be. I would be frustrated. I would, in fact, maybe even be angry. Can't I get just a few minutes to myself? All I wanted was some rest. And the crowds have followed us once again. But that is not how Jesus responds, even though He was the one who insisted on getting away to begin with. Instead, this is where we see His compassion. Verse 34 makes it very clear. And He he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that becomes our theme, not just for this miracle, but for the ones that follow. Now, to explain His compassion, He uses a well-known simile. They were like sheep without a shepherd. We find this picture of shepherd and sheep in both the Old Testament and the New. Perhaps our favorite psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. That is, God provides for me, so I have no reason to want. And what we quote in that psalm is what we see pictured in this particular story that Jesus is the shepherd who provides for his sheep. When Moses was coming to the end of his time, and he knew that he was about to pass off from the scene, and therefore the Israelites needed someone else to lead them. He actually prayed, and in his prayer, he was asking God for a new leader, and he said one of the reasons he wanted a new leader was so that the Israelites would not be sheep without a shepherd. And of course, we know that God provided in that case. In answer to Moses' prayer, God provided Joshua as their next leader, and Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek name in the New Testament for Jesus. So God provided Joshua in the Old Testament, and now we see Jesus in the New. And speaking of Jesus, he himself said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus sees this crowd as without direction, without purpose, without leadership, which is ultimately a true description of all who are apart from Christ, though they do not know it. And so notice what he does next. He sees the crowd, he has compassion on the crowd, and the next thing he does is he teaches them. Let's not rush forward to the miracle. Let's not think only about the thing that makes this story so memorable and famous, and that is the the multiplying of the bread and fish. Before we get there, he had compassion on them, and his compassion led him to teach them many things things. We are reminded that our primary objective is the same as Jesus's, and that is the preaching and teaching of the gospel message. Don't forget that even in compassion ministry, the focus is the proclamation of the gospel. Again, we do the other things to open up doors for the sharing of the gospel, but if we do not share the gospel, we have not done what God has called us to do. He is teaching them about the kingdom of God. That is why the the day has left them. It is late in the day now, and they need something to eat. He has been teaching them, and He is about to demonstrate His power and authority to them. And so the hour is late, and the disciples have become concerned. Concerned. Their plan is to send everyone away. Let them go into the neighboring towns so that they can find something to eat, which with this large of a crowd is not the greatest plan, but it's the only plan they could think of because they didn't have any other option. The neighboring cities and towns probably had populations in the neighborhood of two or 3,000 people each. The word here for men, when we come to the end of this story, is a word specific for males. Therefore, there are more than 5,000 people here. In all likelihood, there is somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen to 20,000 people in this crowd. So calling this the feeding of the 5,000, as all of our headings in our study Bibles do, is not doing justice to what Jesus does here. This is really the feeding of the 15,000 plus So even to send them into the neighboring towns is certainly going to be a chore. But rather than relieve the crisis, Jesus escalates it. He escalates the crisis by commanding the impossible, or at least that's the way they're going to see it. Don't send them away, he says. Why don't you give them something to eat? A denarius was the equivalent of a day's wage for the common laborer. And so the disciples respond by saying, it will take 800 denarius. We don't have that kind of money, so therefore we cannot feed them. So what do you have, Jesus asked. He says, go and find out. And when they come back, they discover that all they can find is five loaves, which these loaves are going to be smaller and flatter than what you're thinking about and two fish, and these fish are likely going to be salted and dried, and so there is really not much to work with here. But Jesus doesn't need much to work with. After all, He is the Creator. And so He miraculously multiplies what they do have so that everyone is fed, and not just a little morsel, everyone is fed so that they are satisfied or filled and there is plenty left over. In fact, this is no coincidence, there are 12 baskets of fragments left. Can't you just picture every single one of the disciples holding one of those baskets as a visual reminder of what Jesus has just done, this miracle of the multiplication. Now I've rushed through the details of the story because I want to get to the implications rather than merely retelling the details. There are quite a number of similarities here with the Old Testament story of God's people in the wilderness. Remember, this whole drama begins with Jesus saying, or commanding, you come away with me for some rest. God was planning on giving His people rest. In the Old Testament, that's the reason they were going into the promised land was so that they could have rest. It was a place for them to be with God. Though they were delayed in getting there, that was the design. And the writer of Hebrews draws out the New Testament implications of the rest of God, saying that we now, as believers, we have entered into that rest. Jesus gave the command and said, All ye who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me, and I will give you rest. Now, that does not mean that we become lazy But it does mean that we find our rest in our relationship with Christ because He has paid the penalty for our sin. He has set us free from that sin debt, and therefore we can find rest in Him. There are other correlations here. Jesus divides up the crowd, even as Moses organized the crowd in a similar manner. God has now sent a new and better deliverer. And certainly, perhaps you've noticed the correlation between this feeding and God providing manna in the desert, not for one meal, but God provided the manna for 40 years. And so this miraculous Old Testament event is now being recreated or replicated by Jesus by the Sea of Galilee, where He Himself is the bread of life. This desolate place has now become a place of plenty and satisfaction And the early church saw in this picture a connection to the Lord's Supper. In fact, you may have noticed the similarity in the wording where He looked toward heaven and He blessed and then He broke it. That's very similar wording to what we find in the Lord's Supper. And so this is a foreshadowing or a a, a picture of what was to come when on that Thursday night Jesus would transform the Passover celebration into what we call the Lord's Supper. And by extension then... Since the Lord's Supper prefigures what we're going to do with God in heaven someday, this miracle by the sea, this compassion uh, in the the multitudes here of, of the bread and the fish is a prefiguring of the banquet that you and I will enjoy in heaven someday. And you know the Jews were very particular about their food. That is, it had to be prepared in a certain way, it had to be a certain kind of food, and it was only to be eaten by those who were ceremonially clean. That is not so the case here. This banquet is all-inclusive. That is, the invitation goes out to all. I'm not saying that everyone's going to come to it, but I'm saying the invitation goes out to all. Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I told you there's more to the story than meets the eye, because we're not just seeing a miracle of loaves and fish. We are seeing the God behind the miracle. And we see the same thing when we move to the second story. So we've seen here the compassion that Jesus demonstrated in the multiplying of the loaves and fish. And now let's see compassion at sea, verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This story is probably more famous for Matthew's version than Mark's. In Matthew's version, of course, we find Peter who is... uh, considering what he is going to do, and Jesus invites him to come out on the water, and Peter does follow the command of Christ, and Peter gets out of the boat and walks on water, but when he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sing. But Mark doesn't tell us any of that, because Mark's focus is on Christ, not the men in the boat. Now, the strange thing about this event is Jesus' insistence that the disciples leave while he stays behind. Did you notice how strong it is? Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat. Jesus wants his disciples out of there for some reason. And there must be some underlying issues going on here that maybe we don't catch when we read it quickly. This part of Galilee was a hotbed of revolutionary activity against Rome. In fact, the many people coming and going that we noticed in the last story... Has the has the sense of being secret, like they were clandestinely, clandestingly. Maybe I shouldn't use that word. Coming and going, they were secretly moving about. And in all likelihood, what we find here is the possibility that they are intent on sweeping Jesus up into this revolutionary uh, movement and making him their leader, inaugurating him as their Messiah in all the wrong sense of the word. And the disciples are susceptible to joining into this. I mean, what better way to get noticed themselves than to have Jesus, their leader, become the leader of this whole group, then they will get notoriety as well. And so there is some sense here that Jesus understands that this movement is afoot, that his disciples are susceptible to it, and so he gets them out of the way immediately and he stays behind to pacify and dismiss the unruly crowd. And then he goes by himself to pray. Mark only records Jesus praying three times. That doesn't mean he didn't pray more. I'm simply saying that's the only times Mark records it. And every time he records it, it is at night, it is by himself, and it is during a significant time of stress in his life and ministry. So perhaps here he is praying for strength to avoid the temptation himself so to refuse the acclaim of the crowds, he goes off in solitude. Now you say, how do I get all of that out of these words? Well, to be fair, I get a lot of it from John's gospel. John says this in between these two stories, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the the mountain by himself. So there is this movement afoot and Jesus understands it, so He gets His disciples out of there, and He Himself dismisses the crowd and goes off to pray. And during the night, He sees that His disciples are in danger. Now, this too is a miracle, another example of His divine ability to see things that others cannot see. It is somewhere between the hours of 3 and 6 in the morning. That would have been the fourth watch. And that's a, that's a Roman reckoning of time. The Jews only had three watches. And so we know it is in the early morning. We know that they have been rowing virtually all night and have not gotten very far if they've gotten anywhere at all. They have wasted their time, if we might say that. And we've talked before about the nature of the weather on this particular sea. And therefore, the strong winds have prevented them from reaching their destination And it is a recurring theme in Mark that when the disciples are separated from Jesus, they often find themselves in distress, which is another good example for us, that it is to our advantage, it is for our benefit for us to be with Jesus. And yet there is another truth that is equally important. These disciples are right where Jesus told them to be. You see, we have this idea, and it is very difficult for us to overcome, but we have this idea that when we are in the will of God, everything will go well for us. These disciples are in the will of God. They are right where Jesus told them to be. Jesus, in fact, sent them into trouble, and that's a difficult lesson for us to learn. But in the midst of that trouble, He is going to come to them, and He is going to minister to them. So back to our drama on the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is going to demonstrate His compassion once again. He sees them in trouble, and He comes to them by way of walking on the sea. Now, for those who do not believe in miracles, there must be some other explanation. And so some have said this is a mere illusion. They thought in the early morning hours and because of their fatigue after rowing all night long that He was walking on the water, but in reality, He was on the shore They just didn't understand the difference. Or perhaps he is walking on a sandbar. But if he's walking on a sandbar to the boat, then the boat's going to be stuck on a sandbar as well. Any and all explanations of this type that attempt to explain away the miracle is done because man simply cannot walk on water. And that's the point. Man is not walking on water. They had never seen anything like this in their life. They were actually afraid, thinking that they were seeing a ghost, and they were tired. and That's the best explanation they could come up with. But notice this in verse 45. It's a very strange statement, verse, verse 48, I'm sorry. In verse 48, at the very end, he, that is Jesus, meant to pass by them. Why would he pass by them? when He's seen them in trouble and He has come now onto the sea by virtue of walking on the water and now He's going past them. Well, multiple explanations have been given for this strange statement. Maybe this is just their perception, a wrong perception, but the perception of the disciples. The disciples thought that Jesus was going to pass them by. Or was He testing their faith coming alongside the boat. And you can also translate this accurately by saying something like, he was coming up alongside the boat, and therefore he was coming up beside them to see whether or not they would recognize him. And while that is a possibility, I think there is more going on here. That phrase, passed by them, is a phrase we've already seen this morning if you were paying attention. Jeremy read for you from Exodus chapter 33, a passage where we see that phrase. In that incident, Moses wanted to see the glory of God, which of course he was not permitted to do, not in its entirety. Instead, God graciously said he would pass by, and in passing by, he would allow Moses to see a glimpse of his glory. We see the same phrase in the life of Elijah when he was on Mount Horeb. Again, the same phrase is used. God would pass by Elijah, and in that case, God was not seen in the earthquake. God was not seen in the fire or in the um, wind, but God was seen in the still small voice or the whisper. So I think the phrase here has significance. I think what we are intended to see here is that Jesus is trying to communicate to them once again by passing by. He is trying to show them a glimpse of his glory. But We know from the concluding statement that they don't see it nor do they understand it. And I think that's the connection. Did you notice at the end here, they did not understand about the loaves. Why does it mention the loaves at the end of the story of walking on the water? Because there's a connection. They were supposed to see a glimpse of God in the miracle of the transformation of the loaves and fish, and now they are supposed to see a glimpse of God's glory in Him passing by, but they do not see any of that. Jesus does calm their fears. He says, take heart, it is I. The translation, it is I, is in the original just two words. And literally translated, it means I am. And that too is significant and bolsters my argument about the previous statement that we've just examined. When Moses is confronted by God at the burning bush with the task or the mission to go to Pharaoh and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, Moses says to God, well, who am I going to tell them has sent me? What is your name, God? What do I say when they say to me, who sent you? And God answers Moses by saying, tell them I am has sent you. And that speaks to the eternal nature of God and his character. Tell, them, tell him I am Has sent you. In John's gospel, there are multiple I am statements about Jesus or from Jesus. In fact, I've already mentioned one I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's about eight of them, but there's another one that I think is the most significant. It's found in John chapter 8 and at the very end of that chapter. In that particular setting, Jesus is having yet another verbal confrontation with the religious leaders. And those religious leaders proudly claim that Abraham is their father. And in response to that, Jesus says to them, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, how could Abraham see the day of Christ? They lived so many years apart. How, How is that even possible? And that was their dilemma. And so they looked at Jesus and they said, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And here is Jesus' response. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood what he was doing because the next verse says they picked up stones to throw at him. They knew that Jesus was taking the Old Testament name of God and applying it to himself. And I believe that's exactly the same thing he's doing in this story of the walking on water. In compassion at sea, he not only tried to show them the glory of God, he identified himself as God. Do not be afraid. I am is with you. Connecting these two stories together, they did not see. They saw the miracle of the loaves and fish, but they didn't see God. They saw a man walking on water, and for the second time in less than half of a day, They did not understand that this was no mere man. Mark tells us their hearts were hard. It's one of the harshest statements that he makes about the disciples. And Likewise, if we go away from here this morning talking about the miracle of the feeding, or if we go away from here this morning talking about walking on water, we too have missed the point. Yes, Jesus does know our needs, and yes, He is sufficient to meet every need we have. Yes, Jesus does know when we are in trouble and distress, and yes, he is fully capable of coming to us and turning the storms of our life into a time of peace. But this is all true because this is not a man making a meal, this is not a man walking on water. This is God whose presence overcomes the storm and whose provisions meets our every need. Well, we need to look at the last story and I will do so very quickly. It is a summary section where we see the compassion in the crowds. Verse 53, When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Again, this is a summary section. It's the third one that Mark has done for us. And it reminds us that there are more miracles than just the ones we've studied. There are more healings. There are more casting out of demons than the stories that Mark records. And so as Jesus traveled to the various various cities and villages, they would bring the sick into the marketplace since this was the largest place and Jesus is most likely to go there. And in that marketplace, they would hope to come in contact with Jesus, hoping to touch the tassels of his garments. That would be part of the the outer garment that a Jewish man would wear, and in hoping to touch him they would expect to be healed. And this is not magic. We have to read this in light of the stories that we've already examined, particularly the story about the woman who had a bleeding problem for 12 years, and she came in faith believing that if she touched Jesus, his power would go into her and heal her, and it did, and we are seeing the same things here. These people had faith enough to believe that Jesus had the power to heal And they had faith enough to believe that if they touched him, they would be healed. And that is exactly what happened. Now, over and over again, people then and now are confronted with this question. Who is this? I mean, who is this man whose mere touch can heal people? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this man who speaks with such authority that the scribes don't talk like this? The other religious leaders we have don't talk like this. Who is this man that even the demons obey him? Who is this man that speaks with authority? And every time the answer is the same, or at least the correct answer is, this is God in the flesh. This is not a dynamic speaker who has come with a motivational message. This is not just a good man who lived a great example for us to follow. This is certainly not a manipulative preacher who is trying to draw a crowd and make a name for himself and profit in the meantime. He is God in the flesh. We saw it last week in the resurrection where Jesus coming out of the tomb testified loudly that he is in fact God, and we see the same thing in these three stories in the demonstration of his compassion. And if all of that is true, it means that as Mark began his gospel, that the kingdom of God is at hand. That is indeed true as well, which means every single person has a decision to make. Are you going to repent and believe And having repented and believed, are you going to faithfully follow this one who is worthy to be followed and worthy to be worshipped? Or are you going to remain in the hardness of your heart as the disciples were at this point, though of course we know that they will change later. But are you going to remain in the hardness of your heart and not see the God behind these miracles? I pray that that is not true of you. I pray that you would see not just a a miracle of feeding and not just a miracle of walking on water or not just a miracle of healing. I pray that you would see the God behind those miracles and that you would trust Him with your life as well. Let's pray.